we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. This week, Foundry fellow Rebecca Kilberg spoke with Dr. Stephen Abrams about the evolution of the field of digital preservation. They cover the field's history and its current state, including the potentially unexpected fragility of digital objects and continuing concerns around the usability of digital collections. Stephen has spent much of his career working on developing and implementing policies and strategies to ensure the preservation of digital collections. He's currently the head of the Digital Preservation Program at the Harvard University Library. Rebecca is a technologist in residence at the Harvard Law Library Innovation Lab. There, she contributes to the lab as a web developer and conducts independent research on the environmental cost of digital life. Enjoy. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Rebecca. Would you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background? Sure. I am the head of the Digital Preservation Program here at the Harvard Library. And in that role, um, my responsibilities cover things such as um, policy, strategy, and oversight of the various systems and services that we use to ensure the long-term preservation of the university's uh, very rich digital collections. And what drew you to digital preservation? That's a little bit of a circuitous path, as these things often are. Although I've uh, had a lifelong infatuation with books, um, I certainly early on never set out to become a librarian. My academic training uh, as an undergraduate was in mathematics and uh, in graduate school in art history. Um, Might seem divergent, but it never seemed that way to me. Uh, And early in my professional career, I was able to somewhat meld those interests of the technical and the aesthetic in in the in the software world, um, I was a software developer, um, focusing primarily on what we would call today we would call sort of scientific and engineering visualization. Um, anyway, um, I was sort of working in that area um, in the late 1990s, and it was right at that time that the Harvard Library was um, started up what they then called their Library Digital Initiative, which was sort of their first foray into supporting. Um, what we would now call a digital library. Um, there had been some uh, library automation prior to that, but it was primarily just with the online catalog. There was none of the other sort of ancillary systems that we're, we're all very familiar with today. So um, I came over and joined the library at that point, and um, it was a, a wonderful, it was a very heady time because we, you know, there was no GitHub, <laughs> there was no commercial offerings. Um, everything we wanted to do, we had to build it. Um, so we had a blank sheet of paper, and that's that's quite exciting. And can you describe what preservation has historically entailed? Well, let me start by saying, you know, for, for me, uh, preservation is fundamentally about ensuring the continuity of human memory, um, especially as that memory is supported by ready recourse to the both tangible and intangible artifacts 
that encompass the arc and impact of uh, intellectual, institutional, and social thought and activity. Now, in the cultural heritage sector, libraries, museums, archives, and so forth, um, traditionally has distinguished between sort of three inter interconnected terms and concepts of conservation, preservation, and restoration. Uh, conservation is generally held to be the most uh, most general concept and encompasses um, providing assurances that stewarded materials will remain vital for both current and future uh, engagement. Preservation is usually seen as a somewhat more narrow and more tactical activity um, that uh, is concerned with securing um, and assuring the stability and viability of materials in their current state. And then restoration, of course, it has to do with um, ameliorating damaged material and trying to bring it back to some prior canonical state. Um, interestingly enough, in the digital preservation world, we tend to just focus on the word preservation and, and tend to have that give that an, an inclusive meaning. We don't tend to talk so much about conservation or restoration, although aspects of those things um, fall squarely uh, in, into our remit. So then, following from that, digital preservation is merely the translation of these long-standing stewardship goals uh, and priorities into into the digital age. Um, a little bit more specifically, um, preserve, digital preservation is a complex of people, policies, systems, procedures um, that are all focused on ensuring the ongoing archival integrity, authenticity, accessibility, and usability of digital information. Um, very briefly, integrity is the quality of a digital thing being complete and unaltered from its accepted state. Uh, authenticity is the quality of the thing actually being what it purports to be, not a forgery, for example. Um, accessibility is the quality of being known uh, and being capable of be being known to exist and being capable of being requested and retrieved, uh, both technically and legally. And then finally, the real end goal in all this, usability, is the quality of being susceptible to meaningful exploitation uh, for some given contextualized purpose. And would you tell us more about the role usability plays in digital preservation? Sure. Um, well, as I, as I mentioned uh, you know, just a moment ago, uh, usability is, is really the ultimate goal. Um, we're, not, we're not preserving things just to preserve them. We are preserving them, obviously, because we want to enable um, some future reader, what have you, uh, to be able to use, um, effectively use, some you know, um, past informative expression that we've captured and, and maintained over time. Um, it is perfectly possible for um, any given unit of digital information to be perfectly preserved with regard to its integrity, its authenticity, and its accessibility, but yet still uh, only be partial, partially, or even not even not even fully uh, uh, usable at all. Um, it, I can give a brief example of this. Um, I am old enough um, so that my all of the research artifacts um, involved in my um, undergraduate uh, thesis work um, were saved on a computer uh, magnetic tape reel. Um, very old-fashioned. Uh, I still have it. It's been in my my custody, unbroken custody, all these years. Um, it's I know exactly where it is. It's sitting on a shelf in my office. Uh, so it is perfectly has perfect integrity. It's perfect authenticity. It is perfect accessibility. Can I use it? 
Well, I, I doubt it. Uh, perhaps if I could find an old IBM mainframe computer uh, and the strange variant operating system that my university had developed, uh, if I could find a tape drive that I could plug into this thing that would accept my particular form of, of, of tape encoding, uh, if I could find all the software I needed to do all that, then maybe, yes, I could do it. But that's that's pretty unlikely at this point. Um, had I been a little bit more forward-thinking all those years ago and thinking about usability, how am I going to use this thing in 10, 20, 50 years from now, um, then I could have um, done a variety of things to sort of remediate that situation. Uh, I could have um, made a copy of the all the data on that tape onto other media, onto a disk, onto a CD-ROM, onto a USB drive, nowadays onto the cloud. Um, I could have converted the actual thesis document itself uh, from a very idiosyncratic text editor to WordPerfect or Word or PDF. Uh, I could have um, uh, cross-compiled the, the, the software that I had written um, so that it would be usable you know, in terms of a modern computer instruction set. And of course, I'd have to be doing those things periodically over time uh, to keep up with ongoing innovation and obsolescence. Have you noticed, besides this renewed interest in usability, other significant shifts in the field of digital preservation over the last decade? Uh, yes, there, 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 are, there are many. Uh, and um, in the interest of time, uh, I just wanted to highlight uh, one particular set of things. And this is a sort of a community-wide change that I've seen and, and, and welcomed, as, as have you know, all of my colleagues, is the new level of importance and attention that is now being given, properly so, to the various ethical dimensions of sustainability, diversity, and equity um, as, as they apply to the preservation um, enterprise. Uh, in terms of sustainability, it's important to recognize that you know, digital is right there in the name, um, so it necessarily involves the use of technology, uh, a lot of it. Uh, all that machinery consumes power, a lot of it. Uh, generates a lot of heat, it has to, has to be dealt with, a lot of that. Um, it also makes use of a lot of, nowadays, a lot of exotic materials that can be quite problematic uh, to extract, to refine, and ultimately to dispose of safely. So responsible preservation stewardship cannot just mean, let's throw a lot of technology at the problem. Um, that technology needs to be applied very, very deliberately um, with very due consideration to the impact of its application and with an appropriate balancing of um, imperative goals, of expedient um, actions, and the long-term consequences, the intellectual, economic, and environmental consequences. Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do. We are doing uh, a number of these things. Um, we, are, we are much more closely tailoring our preservation actions um, to the specific needs as expressed by curators and content managers who, who are giving us their stuff. Um, so that we, we're trying to make sure that we are doing no more or no less uh, than what is actually called for. Um, we have been somewhat slowing down the cadence of very, very long-running uh, computational processes to, to spread that out and, and, and lower some of the resource consumption. Um, we are placing much greater reliance on lower energy storage solutions and platforms and the use of high-efficiency high data centers uh, such as the uh, Massachusetts Green High Performance Computing Center, um, which is operated by a consortium of Boston area um, academic institutions, including Harvard, that has been very carefully designed to, to, to minimize uh, environmental impacts. Um, on the diversity equity side of things, um, it's important to recognize that um, even here at Harvard, 
uh, we operate with finite resources at hand. Everyone does. Uh, and therefore, um, in a very real way, any explicit decision to preserve this thing is somewhat an implicit decision not to preserve that thing. So this raises really critical and important questions about who gets to decide, whose voices are heard, and whose voices are left out. We are starting to pay a lot more attention to the collection and preservation of the context of the information objects alongside those objects themselves, so that we can present all of that back as a package to a potential user of that information, um, presenting the context of original creation. You know, what was the original author's intention to the extent that we can, we can recover that? Um, the context of collection, um, recognizing that information often accrues extensive meaning and value um, just through the fact of being aggregated together uh, and, and, and presented in the context of presumably, you know, like, like things. Uh, there's the context of prior consumption. You know, what is someone else who's looked at the same thing I'm looking at now? What was their reaction? What was their response? Uh, and so forth. So we're, we're trying to figure out ways effectively to collect all that, which you can imagine is a little bit more difficult than just getting the thing itself. Um, but we feel it's really quite important in this regard. So you also written about the loosening or elimination of restrictions, as you referenced, regarding the type of digital assets that are included in archives. How does this change the impact the work of digital archivists have? I think in retrospect, we, we now realize that in the past, we were being overly prescriptive um, with regarding eligibility uh, for preservation purposes. Um, we here at Harvard, as well as many, if not most or all of our peer institutions, um, when we first started out doing this, and here at Harvard, this goes back almost 25 years, uh, we thought that we were actually um, doing doing our stakeholders a favor by restricting what we were taking in to things that were um, of a, a uniform, extremely high quality in terms of their curatorial processing, their description. Uh, they were very well formed. They were beautiful. They were pristine uh, and so forth. Um, I think in hindsight, that was probably a mistake. And what we were really only doing is we were artificially restricting uh, the universe of materials uh, that we should have been collecting, that we should have been disseminating. Uh, and we were putting the things that we weren't dealing with um, at a significant risk of, you know, potentially irretrievable you know, damage or loss. So um, for the past number of years, um, for over five years now, as a matter of explicit policy here at the library, um, we have basically uh, lowered our eligibility requirements to almost nothing. Uh, pretty much all we want to see is a commitment uh, to participate in and support, both intellectually and financially, um, our preservation efforts. Um, so we pretty much will take in anything. Uh, and those things, again, range a spectrum of, of some, you know, some notion of, of, of quality, some notion of being well understood and so forth. Um, but we feel it's the single most important um, thing that happens in the life cycle of, of a piece of digital information is being collected and put under the care of a managed uh, program. Um, that doesn't necessarily guarantee long-term preservation success, but by not being managed at all, that almost surely guarantees preservation failure. So the, the, the main impact of this loosening of these strictures is we are now dealing at a much greater scale than we did before. Um, everything has gotten bigger except, you know, our staff, <laughs> our resources, our budget, um, which, you know, go up but are, are relatively constant. And they go up at a much slower rate than 
than than the stuff that we're being handed to deal with. So uh, we are. It's incumbent on us to to sort of uh, have in place a, a a continual sense of self reflection, of assessment, uh, and improvement. Um, to do whatever we can to uh, always try to impro- improve our productivity. Um, to a large extent, this involves making greater and greater use of uh, automation and try to restrict, uh, you know, manual human activity to those areas where 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 people are uniquely adding value. Um, but to the, to the extent to which we can embed uh, human competencies, you know, human decision making criteria uh, into algorithmic processes, that's that's all to the better. Um, we're also looking forward in future to a much more in-depth uh, exploration of uses of machine intelligence uh, in this regard. So you've touched on this briefly, but given the new scale, how do you think about the costs of digital preservation? Uh, cost is a is a very very important topic. Um, here at the Harvard Library, our, our preservation activities operate on a partial cost recovery basis. Uh, and that is charged back in a, in a very uh, granular, localized way. Uh, every individual library or library system, in, in some cases for the big professional schools and so forth, um, they're responsible for funding uh, you know, out of their own local budgets um, for preservation activities. This is um, it's not unheard of other, other places, but I think more of a norm at our peer institutions is to, is to try to fund this in a, in a central central way, um, which streamlines things quite a bit. Um, price, of course, is can be seen as an impediment uh, to more widespread you know, adoption and, and use of our services. Uh, and that is, is true, even though you know, we've only been operating in, the, in a cost recovery mode for about 15 years. And over that time, we have reduced um, our price point by about 85%. Um, which is, you know, just, just numerically about 85%. In real terms, it's probably much more than that because, you know, dollars were cheap back then. Um, and, um, but still, um, if you were, you know, a library director and you're operating on a, you know, a fixed annual budget, you know, that only goes so far. Uh, and around here, you know, uh, I think it's fair to say that most people would gladly welcome an opportunity you know, to be able to um, ensure, you know, the longevity of, of a much larger set of materials that are pertinent, you know, to their uh, research and pedagogic interests. So we, we are constantly looking out for ways in which to, um, uh, you know, uh, lower our costs, become more efficient in that regard. Um, another problem on the financial side of things is that um, preservation activity by its nature uh, doesn't net always fit nicely into sort of an annual operational budgeting kind of exercise, you know, where you sort of know ahead of time, where you can anticipate ahead of time what, what it is you're going to need to do. Uh, for the most part, we can do that. But every so often, there's going to be an unusual event. Um, you know, something's going to become obsolete, or there's going to be some major unex- you know, damage, some, something's happened uh, that we need to remediate sort of right away. Um, you know, uh, Time is, is, in the digital world, time is of the essence. In the physical world, not always. You know, um, uh, you know paper uh, is a wonderful preservation mechanism. If you keep it in the right environmental conditions, paper sort of preserves itself. Uh, you know, it's cold, dark, dry, you know, and you don't rip it or, you know, it doesn't burn up. Um, it'll last uh, indefinitely. Um, a digital thing, you know, if the software necessary to render that digital thing is suddenly no longer available, 
um, you have a very small window of opportunity to try to do something before it, you know, it becomes potentially irretrievably lost. Um, so the nature of our funding needs is somewhat bursty. You know, we'll sort of cruise along at a steady state and then all of a sudden, oh, we need to do something. We need a big intervention. Um, that's kind of hard to deal with in, in our normal budgetary, uh, sort of annual cycle. Um, but what we, we, you know, we do try to do is build in a little bit of a cushion. Uh, and we do try to carry it. We carry a little bit of a surplus, um, that, that gives us, you know, uh, recourse to, to funds when and if we need them. In the past at an institution such as Harvard, the papers and ephemera of eminent professors and staff might be collected and archived by the institution. But these days, so much occurs in the digital space, as you mentioned, over email and shared docs, etc. How are institutions grappling with this shift? Um, I think for the most part, I think they're, they're, they're handling it, you know, as well as, as well as they can. Um, it is very, very significant, as, as you mentioned, uh, in the past, uh, you know, legacy donations, other, other forms of donations, other form of acquisitions, you know, well, donations used to come in, you know, in the cardboard box, you know, with folders and notebooks and, and loose, you know, stacks of paper. Uh, nowadays, of course, what arrives are laptops and pieces of storage media. Um, Luckily, uh, this has given rise to a whole new aspect of preservation effort uh, that goes under the name of digital forensics. Um, that is, various techniques and technologies that allow us to perform very in-depth technical examination of digital artifacts to just uh, uncover, in fact, what they are. Um, if someone just hands you something, you don't even know what it is. Uh, you have to find out what it is, what's on there, um, what do I know about it, you know, what, what can I do with it, and so forth. Um, Important to note that um, through forensic, this type of forensic in intervention, you can not only recover sort of what is overtly was overtly meant to be given to you, um, but you can also potentially um, recover ostensibly deleted materials. We all know when you when you delete, you type delete, you know, nothing actually goes away. We're just sort of throwing away a pointer. Um, we can also um, potentially recover. Um, the sequence of changes, editorial changes that have happened over time. Um, and these can really be significant in enhancing the understanding of, of, of this thing itself. Um, as a case in point, uh, the Library of Congress, not us, unfortunately, um, happens to hold the digital papers of the playwright Jonathan Larson, um, who, who wrote the musical Rent. Um, uh, he used a very ancient version of Microsoft Word. I mean, just forever ago, it seems. Um, if you try to open that same file of that script in a current version of Word, what you would see is the final text. Um, subjecting that to some of these forensic tools, uh, the Library of Congress was actually able to recover um, the full editing history. So, uh, you know, uh, Larson or Larson's estate, you know, they thought they were just giving us, giving the library, you know, the final thing. Sorry, that's all, as far as we know, that's all we have. But in fact, uh, they were giving the library the full history, uh, which is incredibly illuminating of the creative process. So that's that's the kind of thing that we we are ramping up our capabilities uh, in this regard. Uh, you mentioned email. Um, uh, also, there's the whole notion of there's a lot of uh, material uh, that's coming to us or being used, you know, that is uh, published only in web form. Uh, luckily, we have longstanding programs in both those areas to deal specifically with with email, uh, to deal with uh, materials that we capture off the web and so forth. Uh, and here we are working particularly 
closely with our colleagues at the University Archives in this regard, um, because they're in the middle of a, of a multi-year project to move toward what they're, what they're calling um, a digital-first records management program. Um, the Archives, of course, has been charged by the university uh, to maintain the, uh, you know, Harvard's, uh, the records of Harvard as, as an institution. Uh, and uh, as you as you know, those records are now are now in, in digital form. There's very little. Some, sometimes things get printed out, but they're printed from a digital master. Um, so the copy of record is in fact a digital file. And again, we're working closely with them as they as they work through the processes of switching over from a, a paper to a digital based record system. Given the fragility that you mentioned earlier, can you tell us a little bit about what a digital black hole is and why people are talking about it? Sure. Um, this is a very, very evocative phrase. Um, another one is is the digital dark age. Uh, I think both of those have been um, quite popularized by uh, the internet pioneer Vint Cerf. Um, essentially, um, what this is this is talking about is, is as you mentioned, the, the the inherent fragility of electronic information. Um, no one can see a bit. You know, it's 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 the ghost in the machine, uh, and there is an inherent um, intervening step of you know technical mediation that's always required to uh, turn turn that digital stuff, you know, into an analog, you know, perceptible form that we could see, that we could touch, uh, and so forth, uh, we could hear, um, and that introduces all sorts of dependencies and all sorts of risks. Um, Preserving digital things, as we were talking about earlier, involves machinery. Uh, you know, every piece of machinery has a has a has a power cord. You know what happens if the power gets shut off? The lights go off. Uh, what happens if the machine itself um, becomes um, becomes obsolete? Um, for example, um, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, um, if you were streaming your digital music back then. You were probably relying on a technology called real audio, somewhat still around, but um, the tooling necessary to uh, to render real audio uh, files, you know, into something that you could listen to, um, they're very unsatisfactory, and they can be very hard to find at all. They can be very hard to install in a contemporary uh, computer environment. So essentially, uh, real audio we would consider it to be you know an obsolete form. Um, what we've done here, we have a lot of, we had a lot of real audio stuff in our collections, um, starting about five years ago, uh, recognizing that there was this sort of incipient uh, obsolescence. We very systematically went through and we translated all that real, real audio into the equivalent MP3 form. MP3 is still a vibrant technical solution. You can, you know, you, we all have MP3 players on our phones and other, other devices. Um, so that means, you know, that, that music as, as an abs- piece of abstract information or creative information, you know, uh, has remained viable, even though it has undergone a radical, uh, you know, restructuring of its, of its physical or, well, or, or digital form. Um, and that's something that we may need to be prepared to do time and time again. Ten years from now, is MP3 still going to be viable? Well, perhaps, but, uh, you know. Not necessarily want to bet on that, uh, so we'll have to we'll have to convert that to um, to to other new forms. This this is a general strategy that we call uh, format migration, 
Uh, and it's one of the two primary strategies involved in, in digital preservation. The other being something called emulation. Uh, in, in an emulation situation, you are able to keep um, your digital assets in their original native form. Um, and you can keep the original software. You know, you have to preserve the software alongside the, 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 you know, the asset itself. Um, and then there, there's technology that basically allows older software to run in a contemporary computer environment. Um, and give you more or less, you know, the uh, the same user experience that you would have had before that. Um, this is something that was always of great theoretical interest to the preservation community, but up until about ten years ago, no one really knew how to do it. Um, but since then, particularly with the rise of uh, computer virtualization, uh, which we all sort of take advantage of nowadays, um, and particularly through the intervention of a very very enthusiastic uh, um, computer gaming community. They were really the ones, amateurs, so to speak, but very, very adept and professional in, in how they approach this thing. They were really the ones who first started um, creating these emulation environments because they wanted to play old versions of their games. You know, that, you know, there was no place to put the cartridge anymore or, you know, they didn't have the right controller. You, you couldn't buy it. You couldn't plug it in. So, um, these are sort of twin strategies uh, that we we take advantage of uh, to deal with this inherent fragility. You know, if we didn't do any of this stuff, you know, if we did not have a very proactive program of managed care, if we were not constantly thinking about, well, what's at risk? You know, what are the things we should be worrying about? Uh, then we would we would very much be falling into the situation where where our universities, you know, valuable, often invaluable. Uh, content would be falling into this digital black hole, no longer accessible. And we would be potentially as a society entering a digital dark age uh, where, you know, the last quarter of the 20th and the first quarter of the 21st century, um, you know, we might know less about those those times than we do about, you know, 500,000 years ago, because that paper is still sitting on a shelf and you could take it out and you could read it uh, and very, very different in the digital world. Given how rapidly things are changing, are there other current policy concerns for archivists and librarians that the audience may be unaware of? Sure. Um, yeah, one thing I, I, I could mention in that regard, um, because I don't think this has reached certainly the, the, the popular imagination yet, but it is something that we in the library world are very much aware of, uh, is that there's been a real shift in the, in the modality by which we acquire uh, new digital materials. Um, in the past, we would actually purchase things. Um, certainly in the, in the tangible world, we would purchase books, we would purchase you know, uh, journals and we'd, they'd be sitting on shelves. Well, they're still sitting on shelves. Uh, nowadays in the digital realm, particularly when we're dealing with, uh, commercial content providers, you know, publishers, um, you know, the scholarly literature, which is now essentially all, all electronic, uh, databases of, of, of information. Um, they're offered to us on a, on a leased, leasing basis. You know, basically we're licensing, um, access, online access to it. We don't necessarily get custody of a physical copy. Um, those license agreements can come with some pretty onerous terms in, in this regard. Um, we as preservationists, in order to do our job, you know, there, there are a number of things that we feel we, we, be, we need to be able to do to this content we're trying to preserve. Um, for example, we need to be able to make a somewhat arbitrary number of um, bit faithful copies. We don't want to just have a single copy. 
um, that, you know, something could happen to it. If we have lots of copies, you know, we could lose one or two and we still have all the others. Um, we need potentially the ability to create derivative forms of the original content. Uh, we were talking earlier about format migration. You know, we, we acquired some things as real audio. Now we've turned them into, into MP3. Were we allowed to do that? Well, uh, we were in that case, but you know, that, that's a larger question. Um, so we, we always try when we're negotiating these leases, um, to put in, you know, the most favorable terms, um, that are specifically granting us rights, uh, to do what, what it is we need to do to be able to preserve this material. Um, digital rights management is another thorny issue in this regard. Again, the, often that online thing you're getting has, has DRM built into it that can severely restrict, uh, what, what you're permitted to do. Uh, and again, it's, that's very inimical, uh, to, to, to the preservation, um, you know, uh, enterprise. Um, also another thing to keep in mind here, it's one thing to negotiate favorable contract terms for your license. Um, it's another to find that they're actually, um, they could actually be exercised, uh, in practice. Uh, we actually have a situation going on right now where we're dealing with a commercial, uh, content pr uh, provider. We have, we have a license with them that says you, you have permanent access to this stuff. And if you want to get your own local copy, we can give it to you. Uh, this company is now bankrupt. Um, they've assigned certain company, uh, you know, capital, intellectual and physical capital to a successor company. That successor is not interested in this particular niche market of providing, you know, e-journals. Um, we're trying to, uh, um, you know, exercise our rights and we're, not really getting a lot of response back, you know, uh, trying to deal with a company that's in receivership or bankruptcy, you know, the, this is not the top of their list of what, what's important to them. You know, they're beholden to the bankruptcy court and they're, you know, they're, uh, you know, their shareholders and, and other people who have a, have a direct financial claim and, you know, a little hand being raised by the library saying, please, sir, you know, can we have our stuff? Um, it just, it, you know, it, it doesn't always come there. So it's a, it's a bit of a salutary lesson that just, just because you, you, you have, Paper rights doesn't necessarily mean you have actionable, um, uh, actual rights in some cases. So that's, that's a little bit troubling. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And thank you so much for joining us today, Stephen. Oh, well, I'm delighted uh, to have the opportunity. Thank you, Rebecca. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Allison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.